0: It's probably hard to describe, and it may seem a little disingenuous to you if you don't know me, Um, even though I don't know many of you, and there are many of you who are here that weren't here a year ago when I last visited. It's hard to describe to you uh, just how much love uh, Catherine, my wife, and I have for you all, for Emmanuel, for Aaron and Laura, uh, for the leaders here, and for this church. We just love you all, and folks ask me, what's... The whole bishop thing about what do, you, what do you do as a bishop, and the easy way to describe it is what Aaron said already. I'm basically a dad, and being a bishop is being a dad, which means a few things, right? Um, as a dad, uh, one of my jobs is to um, have as many children and grandchildren as I possibly can. <laughs> so uh, Catherine and I uh, had a heart for a large family. God, by his grace, gave us uh, six children. And while we're thankful for six children, we actually hope for more. And then when they had gone on, us, was, wait a second, six children could make more children. <laughs> so we could eventually have 30, 40 around the table. And that's actually what we're hoping to do in this diocese, which is really much more of a movement of the Holy Spirit to reproduce churches that reproduce churches. So that there are children who have children who have children who have children which is the very life of the church. And as a bishop, my job is to do my best to catalyze that, coach that, coach leaders like Aaron and others, like like dads do. Like a mom or a dad, it's my job to sort of be out there developing a larger network of relationships so that Emmanuel and other churches can all kind of have their life and do their work within a larger network of relationships that's a regional network like Chicago that goes up to the upper Midwest, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Iowa, Chicago, but also ex- extends to the nations. As a matter of fact, I'm uh, wearing this called a stole that I have around my neck, and, and it has two Chinese characters because one of our key relationships in our diocese is with Singapore. And uh, with the Malays and the Chinese and others that make up Singapore, I'll be there next month building a larger network for Emmanuel, for our diocese, for our works. So as we do our works, we're always thinking globally, as much as we think locally. And so that's also part of what I do as, as a spiritual dad and, and as a bishop. Um, but especially what I'd like to do is I hope to come and to feed you now and to give you something from God's Word. And the message that I'm bringing uh, this morning Uh, Often when I teach, I kind of take a small passage of Scripture to work that through. But I want to do something that's a little bit more macro than that and uh, reflect on a larger theme uh, with you and give you some scriptural sort of support and scriptural uh, underpinnings for that. But before I do that, let's pray together again and seek the Lord to open our hearts, open our minds. Uh, We need a creativity to receive God's Word. God's Word is so profoundly creative. Can I just say, I mean, the Psalm. I mean, God's Word is so profoundly creative. And when you all were doing that, I just I think Emmanuel has something about the memorization of Scripture. I think you all just continue, I know you're already committed to that. Drill down into that as a church. You all are a church, I think this should be marked by a devotion to the Word of God, marked by a creativity around the Word of God and a memorization of the Word of God. When you do that kind of thing, the Word of God just expands, doesn't it? I heard that Psalm in a whole new way, like I've never heard it before. It's very powerful. So, Lord, just give us, even now, creativity to hear your word. Uh, Give me creativity to teach and preach your word. Uh, Lord, help us with how narrow we are in our sinfulness. Uh, Lord, we ask you to have mercy on our narrow-minded thinking. And instead, we ask that you would surprise us with the fullness of the word of God. Lord, you spoke a word and light came into being. You spoke a word and animals came into being. You spoke a word, O oh Lord, and created man and woman. And we are in the presence of him who has the greatest creativity ever imaginable. So would you speak a word today? Well, we're asking that you would revive us in the power of the word of God. We're asking you would revive us, Lord, in the gift of the church to this world. We're asking you revive us, O oh Lord, in our faith and our belief in the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Whenever I'm in the city, I'm, I'm always taken back to uh, my years right after college when I graduated. I graduated from a school out in the suburbs and I moved. I'm um, into the city right away. And it was a season where I was working through a lot of things spiritually, working through a lot of very intensive questions spiritually. <laughs> it's as if when I was raised in my family, I wasn't raised in an intensive Christian environment. I'm assuming there are many of you here who maybe had the same kind of upbringing. You were not raised in an intensive Christian environment. You know, I'm, I'm assuming, as I'm speaking right now, that there's some of you who right now are not in an intensive Christian environment. There's some of you who may not name yourself Christian. You're here because you're curious about Christianity. So I was kind of given the broad outline of Christianity in my upbringing, which I found somewhat interesting, but not that engaging. I went to a Christian college where I was given like the whole book, if you will of Christianity, it was like one of those books that you start to read and you just can't get into it. You know that feeling? I went through three of them, three novels. I started, got 10 pages in, 100 pages in, and I just couldn't get interested. Well, I thought that way about Christianity. There was enough to read into it a few chapters, but I wasn't engaged, I wasn't enthralled. I kind of just thought, I'll just go to Wikipedia, read about you know Christianity there, and I kind of got my understanding. And I was living in the city, and in very short, but it's a long story. I just reached a place of absolute personal crisis. I wish I could tell you that I thought my way intellectually into the glories of Christian theology. I did not. It's far more humbling than that. My life was failing. I mean, my life just wasn't working. My relationships were in crisis. I had a vocational crisis. I, I, had, I had different levels of just in, ineptitude on my part, incompetency. I just came to a point where I was so sick of myself. And in that desperation, somebody gave me some information about Christianity that I'd heard before. I thought I knew it. I, they gave me a song that I thought was absolutely cheesy. It was sentimental. It was everything that I stood against this song. But I, it, was a, it was a tape, which was like a plastic thing, and you would actually put it in a machine. And you could, you could actually play it in your car, which was really exciting. I put it in my car, and I put on the song, And it was a song about a story from the Bible called The Prodigal Son, Luke chapter 15. It's a story about a kid that goes far away from his father, and he returns to his father, and the father embraces him. It's supposed to be a story about God. We're far from God. We come back to God. He one step toward God. He embraces us. And I just fell apart when I heard that song. I was driving north on Ashland Avenue, and I had to pull over my car. It was bizarre. I was flooded with emotion. And I met Jesus. How else do I say it? And the outline I'd been given in my childhood and this big book I'd been given in my college education, all of a sudden, it all came alive. It all became very real. And I was super engaged and super eager to understand what this was. And this time when I opened this novel, if you will, I didn't stop check chapter two. I stayed up all night reading, if you know what I mean. I mean I'm now reading at stoplights, if you know what I mean. I'm, I'm thinking about when can I go back and read that book? It's so good. My faith that had been given to me, in some capacity as a child and as a student, was now re-vived. It was given life again. Okay, there's some words in our language that they're really good words, but they begin to lose meaning because so much is attached to them or they're used so often. So, several years ago, paradigm was one of those words. It's a great word, but people use it so much paradigm, whatever? What does paradigm mean anymore? Organics become that way, right? Everyone's captured organic. What does organic really mean anymore? Local. Local's like that now. Everyone's using local. So it kind of begins to lose meaning. And in Christianity we have words like that too. Discipleship becomes a word like that. I kind of look at them like like pistachio words. As if you were to bite on a pistachio without cracking the nut first. When you bite down, the shell is hard, tasteless, and even a little painful. And as somebody that loves words, I find words like, for example, discipleship, which is a really great word, it's bland now, though it shouldn't be, it's tasteless, even a little hard, crusty. A pistachio word that needs to be cracked wide open is the word revival. And if I say that word and you have a Christian background, you may not like that word very much. If you don't have a Christian background you hear that word, you may not have any association with it whatsoever. You're probably ahead of the game right now. That's where you're at. But I would like this morning to crack open that word revival. I'd like to take the hard shell off of it. I'd like to open up the meat of it. I'd like to explore what does the word revival really mean. I'd like to ask the question, why do we need revival? Because what I experienced in that car on Ashland Avenue so many years ago, I didn't know it then, was the Bible. I was brought back to life. What is revival? Here's a definition of revival. When the power and the life of God manifestly overwhelms the power of sin in our lives. When the power and the life of God manifestly, I want to use that adverb, manifestly, it, it clearly, it, 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 in an expressed way, overwhelms the power of sin in our lives. That will be a definition of revival. So why do we need revival? Well, we need revival because too often the power of sin overwhelms the manifest power of God in our lives. Amen? The power of sin. The power of confusion in our thinking. The power of rebellion in our hearts. The power of desire to have power over you. All different things are the power of sin. The power of pride. The power of fear. The power of unbelief. All these realities can overwhelm the power of God. So I begin living my life by those things rather than the power of God. We need revival so that the power and the life of God manifestly overcomes, overwhelms the power of sin in our lives. It's really important that you understand revival biblically and spiritually on a personal level. Because revival has a personal component. We're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which means we're seeking to personally live in the resurrection power, the resurrection life. The fact that Jesus historically was raised from the dead has personal application for all of us in our lives. Meaning the resurrection of Jesus, his power over sin, his power over death, absolutely changes how we think about death, how we think about life, how we think about money, how we think about sexuality, how we think about relationships. It has to have a personal application. A revival also has to have a kind of parish application, <laughs> a church application. Emmanuel, you are to be a place that is in revival. That is to say, What? The power and the life of God manifestly overcoming the power of sin. Amen? Amen. Amen? And we want to be a diocese. We want to be a regional movement. But that is true as well. Which is why we chose as kind of our guiding light as a diocese. Our desire is to plant a revival of word and sacrament infused by the Holy Spirit. We are revived when we're living our life in God's word. We are revived when we understand the fullness that matter matters. The sacraments have been given to us by God to lead us to God. And we are revived when we actually have faith in the power of the Holy Spirit. Those are the constituent elements of revival. The word of God, the sacraments of the church, and the power of the Holy Spirit. I love what's said about personal revival by a revival thinker, Norman Grubb. It's a great name. He says this, he said, I had a misconception of years that revival could only come in great soul-shaking outpourings of the Spirit. I saw the defeatism and almost hopelessness that so many of us have fallen into by thinking that we could do nothing except pray and wait until the heavens rent and God came down. He had this idea that revival was this kind of crazy, spontaneous moment. Now I see revival in the truest sense It's an everyday affair right within our reach. When it does break forth in greater and public ways, thank God. And we want to see that in our churches and our disciples. We want moments of public display of the power of God overwhelming the power of sin. But meanwhile we concede to it that we ourselves are being constantly revived. Because you have access to God's word. You have access to God's Sacraments, Holy Communion and Baptism and the ministry of the church. You have access to the power of the Holy Spirit. What do you need that you don't have to have personal revival? What do you need that you don't have access to to have personal revival? You have it all. Even more so in a country where we can so freely express our faith. I know we're talking about concerns around all of that. Let's be really, really clear. In the scope of the international world, we have absolute freedom still to express our faith. Well, the moment is here. Let's go for revival of God's word, sacrament, and spirit. We have absolute freedom to do that. Why do we need revival of the word? Let's look at that first. Talk about three constituent elements. We need revival of the word because we forget God's word. It's just that clear. We forget God's word. Part of the element of our sinful disease, and we're all diseased creatures, is that we forget God's word. It's a kind of strange sickness. As a matter of fact, one of the books of the Bible in the Old Testament is called Deuteronomy. Well, Deuteronomy, you break down that word and you look at the original languages. Basically, what it's saying is second word. The reason Deuteronomy is given is that God had already given his word to the people of Israel. He's he's revealing himself to the people of Israel. He'd given them the ten words. Ten commandments really just means ten words. He had given them guidelines in which to live a life in God, a revival life. But within a matter of decades, they forget God's word. So he gives them a Deutero, second, namas, word, law. A second word. Because the fact of the matter is intrinsic to the human sinful nature is that we forget God's word. So there's even a Bible book named after it. That's how, that's how central it is to who we are. Deuteronomy chapter 8 verses 1 to 2. The whole commandment, when you hear commandment, the word, okay, commandment, word, the whole word, the whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live multiply, go in and possess the land of the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord has led you. Why do we need a revival of God's word? Because we forget God's word. Isn't this crazy? You've just been saturated in God's word. We just heard four lessons of God's word. I'm teaching God's word right now. But can any of you tell me if you're not absolutely sure that when you leave this place in an hour, you may forget God's word? That you may not look at somebody else and want to take something from them in your mind? That you may not have malice towards somebody else within the next hour after you've heard God's word? It's unnerving how quickly we forget God's word. So we need to revive. We need, we need God to give us his word again and again. As preachers, Preachers' job is to bring a revival of God's Word. We're not revolutionaries. We're not revising God's Word. We're not redacting or, or editing God's Word. We're not radical interpreters of God's Word. We're Word of God revivalists. Our work is to somehow bring the Word of God breathed by the Holy Spirit so that it's alive to us yet again. But every generation and every culture is in danger of forgetting parts of God's Word. One reason why I have so zealously pursued partnership with Diocese of Singapore in Asia, I pursued partnership for 15 years with Nigeria, and with a particular parish, a particular diocese in Nigeria, is because when I go there and I'm in their culture, I see how I've forgotten God's word in my American culture. But here's what's so beautiful about sin. Everybody has it. So the Nigerians, they're, they're not They're not without sin. So they come to America because then they come to America as a part of our partnership and they come here and they, they realize what they've forgotten about God's word. And we've actually developed a relationship, for example, with Nigerian brothers and sisters where we now have enough trust where they can confront me and say, Stuart, you're not understanding God's word right here and your American concept. And I can say, oh man, I'm broken about that. And you're not understanding God's word here. Because every culture, every generation, has a particular, particular proclivity to forget God's word. And we need ourselves intergenerationally, we need interculturally, interethnically to help each other remember God's word. For one of the most important reasons why we need a profound cross cultural, cross ethnic church. Amen? Because we didn't remind each other of God's word. Let's give one example. It's kind of a glaring example in my mind for us as an American church, for us in our diocese. I think we forget God's word where Jesus said, I have come to seek and save the lost. I'll we'll give an example. I have a good friend named Kevin Harney who's written some books about evangelism. He calls it organic <coughs> outreach. But Kevin makes this great point. And I was, a, I was about five pastors one day when he asked this question for the first time. He said, Hey, you guys. Um, if you stopped having worship services in your church, how long would it take before your people would complain? Well, I'm at Resurrection where we're obsessed with worship. I said, 24 hours? I mean, we're worshiping every day. 24 hours, I said. Other guys said a week, week and a half. I said, okay. If you stopped all forms of uh, Christian formation, children's work, youth work, educating folks, how long would it take before your folks complain? They'll kind of say, oh, maybe three weeks. If you stopped all evangelistic ministries in your church, How long would it take before your people complain? One of my buddies, one of the most courageous of all of us said, well, it's been 11 years so far and no one's complaining. Right? Let's just be honest. We forget God's word. We don't shape our churches around how we can seek and save the lost. I'm leading a church that's as guilty of that as any other church. We forget God's Word. Thus, we need revival in God's Word. Second, we need God's revival in the ministry of sacraments. The Holy communion, baptism, but sacraments are more than that. To understand sacrament, just understand this word, matter matters, okay? Matter matters. Matter matters to God. So when God wants to communicate who He is, He does it through His Word, first and foremost. But in His Word that He does it, through matter. He didn't say to the people of Israel in the Old Testament, I want you to go out in the desert and think about me. Let us go out there and have a bunch of classes about me. I want you to organize hundreds of classes all about me. Classes about God are great, by the way. But it actually wasn't what he did first and foremost, right? He gave them his word, he gave them ten words, but then he said, I want you to have a tent of meeting where my presence will dwell. I want you to burn things on an altar. I want you to smell and taste and see who I am and what I'm doing and how I'm freeing you from sin and giving you a vision where the life of God can manifestly overcome the life and power of sin. Matter matters. See, we think that the battle that we're up against if we're Christians is a battle against flesh and blood. In our mind, that battle has, depending on your politics and your ideologies, there's a certain political group that maybe you think the enemy is. And my guess is you probably have different enemies in this one church. Right? We have different ideologies. That's the enemy. Or different people within our work sphere. That's the enemy. We actually think that the enemy ultimately is flesh and blood. But the reality is, the Bible says the enemy are spiritual realities. They call them powers and principalities. And they are against the goodness of flesh and blood. That the real enemy, the devil, and his demons, his unclean spirits, they're actually set against the flesh and blood of Jesus. They're set against those things where matter matters. What does that mean? Well, matter matters. Take, for example, the human body. Gender matters. Women matter. Men matter. The human body matters. The church is the body of Christ. The church matters. But what happens with powers and principalities is they want to convince us those things don't matter. They want to convince us that there's kind of a blanket androgyny of sorts or whatever. They want to convince us that the church is an antiquated institution that only seeks to oppress people. You see how the devil and his unclean spirits affect our thinking? So we start to think that matter doesn't matter? That sexuality doesn't really matter? That we treat our bodies doesn't matter? And instead we're thinking, oh, that political party, that's the enemy. That's what matters. No, 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 no. Our battles against the powers of principalities. Who when to say that the flesh and blood realities, especially Jesus who came in the flesh, the church which is now his hands and feet in this world, that's what they're against. That's what they seek to confuse us about. 1 John chapter 4 says this. 1 John chapter 4 prepares us to understand Get my verse here. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you will know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is from God. In other words, matter matters. Jesus' body matters. His church matters. Our bodies matter, our sexuality matters, it all matters within the life of God. There are many amazing movements that God is doing right now in the power of the Spirit throughout our country and throughout the world, but very few of those amazing church movements have at their heart a desire to see matter matter. They have at their heart the sacramental realities, they're phenomenal evangelical movements Phenomenal Pentecostal movements. They are our sister movements. We've worked with them, you know, cheek to cheek, shoulder to shoulder. But what we have to bring as an Anglican movement is that matter matters. We had an unchurched kid come to our church this Ash Wednesday. For the first time in her life, she was at a church service on Ash Wednesday where we re- realized that we're deeply sinful and that we've come from dust and the dust we shall return. She came forward. She had ashes put on her forehead like this. She'd never had that happen before. She's unchurched. She doesn't know the Bible at all. But she said, something happened. She went to her foster mother. Something happened to me and I never want to wash these ashes off my forehead. She got in touch with the fact that she came from dust and to dust she shall return and the only one who can save her is Jesus. See, matter matters. My eight year old boy, who is who is an insane child, <laughs> says to his mom, I don't want to miss Monday Thursday. The Monday Thursday service at Rez is long, it's a lot of slow music. If you're not engaged, it's a sleeper. I love it, but I don't expect my eight year old boys at Rez to love Monday Thursday. He says to his mom, "I can't miss Monday, Thursday, because that's when they take all the stuff off the altar and they clean it, preparing for Jesus' burial. like, I can't miss that. Why? Because matter matters. He knows there's something. He doesn't even understand it. He couldn't give. Something's happening there, and he knows it's important. We need to have our ministry of matter matters revived. Finally, we lose hope in the power of the Holy Spirit. We lose hope in the power of the Holy Spirit." If you're a Christian and you seek to be orthodox and believe in the Bible, you would tell me that you believe in the Holy Spirit. We'll get up and say it in just a moment with the creed. I believe in the Holy Spirit. But do we lose hope in the power of the Holy Spirit? Do you have areas of your life where you go, I'll just have to live with this feeling the rest of my life. Or do you invite the power of the Holy Spirit into that feeling? I'll just have to live with this condition the rest of my life. I'll just have to live with this job circumstance the rest of my career there. I'll just have to, I'll just have to, I'll just have to. And we do this kind of managing of the difficult things in our life that somehow get through every day, as opposed to inviting in the power of the Holy Spirit, who we are told is the very power of the resurrection of God himself. It's the power of the Holy Spirit which raised Jesus from the dead, we're told. That very power. Does that sound overly enthusiastic to you? Does that sound a little imbalanced to you? If it sounds imbalanced, it's the imbalance of the gospel. I was in Nigeria in December where I, I go again to build this partnership. And we were gathered and there was a prayer meeting. When Nigerians have prayer meetings, they're very expressive. Expressive. I'm an expressive person, and I'm an absolute introvert there. They, they, they think I'm shy and retiring. They have to encourage me out of my shell when I'm in Nigeria. They're, they're so full of expression. So they're having prayer meeting, and they have 60 children, all been adopted by the Bishop of Joss, Nigeria. There's 60 kids. And they're all there. And there's these women that come in from out of town, and they, they were there to serve the children, and their wives are bishops, and they're praying and having prayer meeting, and everyone's jumping, and they're singing. And all of a sudden, one of, the, one of the women, one of the leaders says, I want to pray for these children. And I went, oh, that's so great. She's going to pray for the kids. And then she says, she looks over 60 kids. They're all gathered like you are right now. And she says, I want every child who saw their parents exterminated in front of them. Because there are radical groups that are going through killing parents. I want every child that saw that to come down here so I can pray for you. Okay, now, I've seen a lot of moves of the Holy Spirit in my life. I'm very thankful for that. But when she said that, I thought, no kid's ever going to come down. And if they do come down, what is she going to do with them? You can't make a promise like you're going to help them in some way. That's what I'm thinking. Five minutes pass, but this Nigerian spiritual mother was not going to be Dissuaded. She just waited. And then down comes this little 10 year old girl. She walks all the way down and she just stands right like this. And tears just start pouring out of her eyes. And then a kid comes over here and a kid comes over there. And before you know, the door, 25 children standing there who had watched their parents exterminated before their very eyes. And then these women who had faith in the hope of the Holy Spirit encircled these children they grabbed hands like mother lionesses and they began to pray down the power of God upon these children for their healing, for their restoration, that what the enemy had taken from them, God might restore to them. My 15-year-old son's with me and he's there and he's got his head in his hands. He, he, he can't process it. He can't, he can't take it in. I could hardly look at it. I I have no faith for it. I I had no hope for that moment. And these children start receiving this ministry. They start receiving the power of the Holy Spirit to restore even that egregious tragedy. My hope and the power of the Holy Spirit was revived. That was an amazing moment, but revived it it even more as I know that day in and day out, those 60 children have really been adopted by one couple who parent them day in and day out. I was blown away by that moment, but I was blown away even more by the hundreds of moments that will continue from that point on. Have you lost hope in the power of the Holy Spirit? Have you forgotten? critical elements of God's word. Do you think your battle is against flesh and blood when the fact of the matter is powers and principalities want you to believe that flesh and blood is not good or right or holy or under God's rule? Let's just be quiet together. I want to pray for you.